Hi, this is Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes podcast, the podcast where every episode we do a deep dive into a movie or TV show. And to go along with this analysis, I publish a chart of the story we're covering on the storylanes.com website, a chart I produced while preparing the episode. You don't need to look at that chart, the podcast is standalone. But if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at storylanes.com. Today we're doing something a little different. Instead of doing a deep dive into the structure of a screenplay, I'm going to dive into two scenes of the film we covered last week, Michael Clayton. In particular, I'm going to look at the midpoint scene, where Michael confronts Arthur in an alley and, in the midst of a whole lot of great dramatic conflict, tells him something that causes Arthur to drive the plot off in a whole other direction. And I'm also going to look at the scene a few minutes later, when Karen orders Arthur's murder. They are both superbly written, and it's my hope that we'll learn something about dialogue and the crafting of a scene by looking at these. But as usual, this podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. And there's another layer of spoilers for this one. I recommend you go back and listen to the last episode where I cover the entire film before listening to this one. You'll get my views of the structure of the entire script and an understanding of where these scenes fit in that context. So let's dive right into the first scene that we're going to analyze. It's the midpoint scene, the confrontation between Michael and Arthur. To set this up, Arthur is a senior lawyer at the firm where Michael is a fixer, and Arthur is the problem that Michael has to fix. He has gone off the reservation and is doing things that make his boss suspect he's working against the interest of the client in a big product liability case. And this is, in fact, true. Arthur is trying to help one of the plaintiffs in that suit, because Arthur knows his client is in the wrong, totally and completely in the wrong, like evil levels of in the wrong. But Arthur has a major problem. He is bipolar and he's off his meds and he's deeply manic. This causes him to act out in ways like stripping off his clothes in the middle of a deposition. Michael has been brought in by his firm to fix this problem, but he's lost track of where Arthur is. And that brings us to this scene where Michael is driving around trying to find Arthur. I'll start by playing the entire scene. We're not going to get to the movie. Why don't you just say so? What? I want to go home. Come on, Henry. Hold up. Stay in the car. Lock the door. Arthur! Arthur! Oh! Wait up! Michael, she, she scared me. Make it a delivery? No, no, no. Oh, very funny. No, no, uh, nothing like that. No, right here. Take one, please. It's really, it's, it's, it's still warm. It's the best bread I ever tasted. So welcome home. Oh, I, I know the, uh, the hotel. I'm sorry. I, I, I was beginning to feel a little overwhelmed. 
But you're feeling better now? Oh, yeah, yes, yes, much better, definitely. Just not enough to call me back. Well, I, I, w I was trying to um, gather my thoughts. Uh, that's before I called you, and that's what I was doing. How's that going? Yeah, it's, it's good, very good. But I just, uh, well, I, I just need to make my thoughts a little bit uh, more precise. That's, that's my goal. As good as this feels, you know where it goes. No, 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 you're wrong. I mean, what makes this feel good is that I don't know where it goes. How do I talk to you, Arthur? So you hear me. Like a child, like a nut, like everything's fine. What's the secret? Because I need you to hear me. Well, I, I, I hear everything. Then hear this. You need help. Before this goes too far, you need help. Now, you got great cards here. If you keep your clothes on, you can do pretty much any goddamn thing you want. You want out, you're out. You want to bake bread, go with God. There's only one wrong answer in this whole goddamn pile, and you've got your arms wrapped around it. Well, I, I said I was sorry. You thought the hotel was overwhelming? You keep pissing on this case, and they're going to cut you off at the knees. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm out about. there covering for you. I'm telling them everything's fine. You're fine. Everything is going to be fine. Everybody's cool. I'm out there running this price of genius story to anybody who will listen. And then I wake up this morning, and I hear that you're calling this girl from Wisconsin, and you're messing with documents, and God knows whatever else. How can they're you gonna know that? They're going to take everything away from you. Your partnership, how, your equity. How can you know who they're I They're going to pull your license. How do you know Marty I called told Anna. me. Are you denying it? What how does he know? I don't know. I don't give a shit. You're tapping my phone. Oh, Jesus. Well, explain it. Tell me how Marty because knows. You're walking through a parking lot. You're chasing a girl through a parking lot with your dick hanging out. You think she didn't get off the phone with you and speed dial her attorney? No, nah, she wouldn't do that. Oh, really? I know that. Really? You think that your judgment is state of the art right now? They're putting everything on the table. You need to stop and think this through. I will help you think this through. I'll find somebody to help you think this through. Don't do this. You're making it easy for them. Michael, I have great affection for you, and you lead a very rich and interesting life, but you're a bag man, not an attorney. If your intention was to have me committed, you should have kept me in Wisconsin, where the arrest report, the videotape, and eyewitness accounts of my inappropriate behavior would have had jurisdictional relevance. I have no criminal record in the state of New York, and the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger. Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless, but I tell you this. The last place you want to see me is in court. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? So that's a little more than four minutes. And this scene is a major turning point. After learning his phone is tapped, Arthur directly challenges his client, and that drives the rest of the film. Now let's take a look at the detailed structure of this scene. And to do so, I've broken it down into beats. I've done a story lanes chart of this scene identifying those beats. You can find a link to it at storylanes.com. Now I find that this scene breaks down into seven distinct beats. Each beat captures one key part of the scene and includes major shifts in the power relationships of the scene. This includes both the relationship between Michael and Arthur, but it also includes the relationship between them and the world around them. Now let's step through those beats.
First, there is a prologue. Michael drives around, looking for Arthur with his son in the car. There's a little dialogue between Michael and his son Henry, but the scene is mostly driven by visuals. Here is just this beat of the scene. If we're not going to get to the movie, why don't you just say so? What? I want to go home. Come on, Henry. Hold up. Stay in the car, lock the door. Now there's a couple of things that this beat does. It establishes that Michael is searching for Arthur, and it paints a poor picture of Michael as a father. He is not giving Henry proper attention, instead focusing on his work problem. That both shows Michael in a bad light and establishes how important finding Arthur is to him. He even places finding Arthur above spending time with his son. And to add the finishing touch, Michael leaves 10-year-old Henry alone in the car in a rough neighborhood. Notice the Stay in the car, lock the door. But now he spotted Arthur and we're on to the next beat. Arthur! Arthur! Oh! Wait up! Michael, you, you scared me. You making a delivery? No, no, no. Oh. Very funny. No, no, uh, nothing like that. No, I right hear. Take one, please. It's really, it's 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 still warm. It's the best bread I ever tasted. Now I think of this as initial pleasantries. On the surface, it's two old friends greeting each other. But underneath is a heavy subtext. Michael is angry at Arthur for running away from him, and Arthur just wants to be left alone. But the two haven't really joined in conflict, not yet. Instead, Michael is making small talk, though admittedly small talk with an edge, and Arthur is responding in kind. But that starts to change in the next beat, which goes like this. So welcome home. Oh, I know the, uh, the hotel. I'm sorry. I, I, I was beginning to feel a little overwhelmed. But you're feeling better now? Oh, yeah, yes, yes, much better, definitely. It's not enough to call me back. Well, I, I, I was trying to um, gather my thoughts. Uh, that's before I called you, and that's what I was doing. And how's that going? Yeah, it's, it's good, very good. But I just, uh, well, I, I just need to make my thoughts a little bit uh, more precise. That's, that's my goal. Uh, as good as this feels, you know where it goes. No, 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 you're wrong. I mean, what makes this feel good is that I don't know where it goes. Now notice how gradually we get down to business here. Michael is pushing harder, but it starts out as pure subtext. The, so welcome home, could be sincere. But in the context, Michael is complaining about Arthur running away from him in Milwaukee. And Arthur responds to that subtext by making excuses for his running. But this subtext keeps bubbling closer and closer to the surface, and Michael keeps escalating the conflict by letting it get more direct. He goes from, So welcome home, to, Just not enough to call me back, to, As good as this feels, you know where it goes. Each time he gets more and more direct, and each time Arthur parries as best he can. Now I think the key point in this beat is when Arthur says, no, 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 you're wrong. I mean, what makes this feel good is that I don't know where it goes. That line does a couple of things. First, Michael believes Arthur is denying his mental illness, which sets off Michael into the anger of the next scene. But in a way, it's a warning from Arthur. Arthur doesn't know how this will end because he's never done anything like this before. This isn't him giving in to his mental illness. It's Arthur trying to redeem himself by doing the right thing in this case and he doesn't know where that will go. 
but Michael has now lost his patience. This leads to the next beat, where Michael lectures Arthur like he might a child. This includes Michael's longest blocks of dialogue, and it goes like this. How do I talk to you, Arthur? So you hear me. Like a child, like a nut, like everything's fine. What's the secret? Because I need you to hear me. Well, I, I, I hear everything. Then hear this. You need help. Before this goes too far, you need help. Now, you got great cards here. If you keep your clothes on, you can do pretty much any goddamn thing you want. You want out, you're out. You want to bake bread, go with God. There's only one wrong answer in this whole goddamn pile, and you've got your arms wrapped around it. Well, I, I said I was sorry. You thought the hotel was overwhelming? You keep pissing on this case, and they're going to cut you off at the knees. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm out about. there covering for you. I'm telling them everything's fine. You're fine. Everything is going to be fine. Everybody's cool. I'm out there running this price of genius story to anybody who will listen. And then I wake up this morning, and I hear that you're calling this girl from Wisconsin, and you're messing with documents, and God knows whatever else. Now here, Michael is totally in charge. He brings it to Arthur, and Arthur can only give short responses. Not only short responses, but Arthur responds from a powerless place. He's acting like a teenager caught breaking curfew. Well, I, I said I was sorry. But at the end of this beat, Michael reveals that he knows that Arthur is calling Anna, the girl in Wisconsin. And that triggers Arthur, because Arthur now knows that someone is tapping his phones. And so we move to the next beat. And God knows whatever else, they're going to take that? everything away from you. Your partnership, how, your equity. How can you know who they're I They're going to pull your license. How do you know Marty I told Anna. me. Are you denying it? Well, how does he know? I don't know. I don't give a shit. You're tapping my phone. Oh, Jesus. Well, Arthur, explain it. Tell me how Marty knows. So Arthur starts to snap back. His paranoia is at full throttle. But we, the audience, know he's right. They really are tapping his phones. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Things are shifting, though Michael doesn't seem to know it yet. Michael's still trying to strong-arm Arthur, trying to get him under control. And so we go into the next beat, where Michael tries to reassert control, go back into lecturing mode. You're walking through a parking lot. You're chasing a girl through a parking lot with your dick hanging out. You think she didn't get off the phone with you and speed dial her? No, nah, she wouldn't do that. Oh, really? I know that. Really? You think that your judgment is state of the art right now? They're putting everything on the table. You need to stop and think this through. I will help you think this through. I'll find somebody to help you think this through. Don't do this. You're making it easy for them. Now, Michael is once more the lecturing parent. But Arthur is no longer the defensive teenager. He's fighting back. No, nah, she wouldn't do that. Oh, really? I know that. Really? He denies what Michael is saying instead of apologizing for it. Michael's approach no longer works with Arthur in this new mental space. And so Arthur gathers up his strength, and for the first time in this scene, possibly the first time in the film, we see Arthur as he is beneath the mental illness, a man with great power and command of the law. He is now the one who lectures, and with one speech, he destroys Michael's position. Michael, I have great affection for you, and you lead a very rich and interesting life, but you're a bagman, not an attorney. If your intention was to have me committed, you should have kept me in Wisconsin, where the arrest report, the videotape, and eyewitness accounts of my inappropriate behavior would have had jurisdictional relevance. I have no criminal record in the state of New York. And the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger, 
Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless. But I tell you this, the last place you want to see me is in court. Arthur is now completely in command, and he moves from the formal speech of a skilled attorney to a colloquial smackdown. You can hear that transition in these two sentences. And the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger. Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless. And also note the reference to horses. This is after the scene in the teaser when Michael communed with horses. Now Michael has his response to Arthur's lecture, and now Michael is the one who whines like a teenager. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? Michael's destroyed, and Arthur responds with his challenge. And that challenge is a doozy. It's the key question of the movie, and Michael spends the rest of the film finding his answer. Who is Michael? That is the question. Now this is a powerful scene that lays the path for the rest of the film. But notice a few other craft things about this. First, note who speaks the most in each beat. Early on, Arthur talks the most, but that's because he's babbling. He speaks from a place of weakness, while Michael just shoots out short sentences, little jabs to get Arthur's attention. Then comes the section where Michael lectures Arthur, and here he is totally in control, doing most of the talking. Arthur's reduced to defensive one-liners. But then Arthur gets angry, and the two speak pretty much the same amount in the beat where Arthur is angry and he is slowly taking over. Now there's a short beat where Michael tries to start lecturing again, but Arthur is no longer defensive. He now fights back. And then Arthur lectures Michael, and this is a smackdown on Michael. We see the power that Arthur has, and Michael can't stand up to it. There is one last beat where Michael tries to connect again to Arthur, but Arthur quickly shuts him down. And the scene is over. Now note how the power shifts in this scene. Note the key turning point when Arthur realizes someone is tapping his phone. And note, this is at almost exactly two minutes into this four-minute scene. It's the midpoint of the midpoint where the entire scene pivots. This is solid structure for a scene. Now, most of our script analysis methods don't really apply to individual scenes. They apply to entire screenplays. But there are some that are specifically about scenes. One that I'm going to use to analyze these scenes is Aaron Sorkin's approach. In Sorkin's model, in every scene, each character has an intention, an obstacle, and a strategy to overcome the obstacle. In this scene, Michael's intention is to get Arthur to stop misbehaving, to get his mental illness under control, and to stop causing problems for the firm. His obstacle is Arthur, Arthur's stubbornness, Arthur's unwillingness to play along. And Michael's strategy is to find Arthur and talk him into behaving, to try to reason with him if possible, but also to threaten him. But note, Michael is starting to lose his temper here, and that is another obstacle for him. By contrast, Arthur is actually the more interesting character in this scene. Michael's intention, obstacle, and strategy are pretty much consistent throughout the scene, but Arthur shifts things up a bit. Now throughout, Arthur's intention is to get away, and his obstacle is Michael. But he keeps shifting his strategy. 
At first, he tries to disarm Michael by talking about bread and other distractions. But when that doesn't work, he gets defensive, tries to just put his head down, to hope like that whiny teenager that if he just throws things out, says he's sorry, the problem will go away. That, of course, doesn't work. But then, when he learns that his phone is tapped, Arthur goes on the attack. And now he dresses down Michael. He's the one giving the lecture. Now this works. Michael is reduced to defensiveness. And so when Arthur leaves, Michael does nothing to try to stop him. Arthur has achieved his intention, but Michael has failed at his. And the screenplay references this in the last line of description in the scene, where it describes how we last see Michael, standing on a sidewalk with a baguette in his hand and a great variety of failures arranging themselves around his heart. So intention, obstacle, and strategy. It's a good way of looking at this scene. And you can see how useful it can be for the screenwriter for crafting a scene. Especially when, as in this case, the characters are each other's obstacles. This sets up nice conflict in the scene. Now, let's take a look at another scene. This is the scene a little later in the film when Karen orders Arthur's murder. It starts on page 76 of the screenplay and it goes something like this. You don't need me to tell you what that means. Goodbye. It seemed to warrant my yes. coming to... You, you have to contain this. Contain? Right. Well, that's my question. What are the... What's the option that we're looking at along those lines? You're talking about the paper, the data? I... Well, I'm wondering if there is some other option. I mean, something I'm not thinking of. We deal in absolutes. Okay. I understand that. I do. I mean, the material, the papers. I'm not a lawyer. We, we, we try. We, we do what we can. Well, the other way. Is the other way. But maybe you want to bring Don in on this. No, this has nothing to do with Don. He's busy. This has nothing to do with Don. Do you think it's doable? Yeah, we have some good ideas. You say move, we move. The ideas don't look so good, we back off, reassess. Okay. Is that okay, you understand, or okay, proceed? Now, there's a few things interesting to note about this scene. First, it's only two and a half minutes, not long at all. Second, there aren't really distinct beats in this scene. There's no shifts of power, as there is in the other scene. Karen holds the power throughout this scene. Everything is her decision to make. Now, once she hears the recording, Karen has one goal in this scene, to order Vern to kill Arthur. But she does not want to be too overt about this. She is trying to maintain a degree of plausible deniability, and so she is very circumspect in her language. Now, Karen's goal never changes in the scene, and at the end, she's accomplished it. Now, Vern has only one goal, to get his orders for what to do next. 
Again, his goal doesn't change and he accomplishes it. And note that these two goals are not in conflict with each other, unlike the scene with Michael and Arthur. So you don't necessarily need conflict in a scene to make it good. So there's a lack of conflict, and the characters don't really change much in the course of this, so what makes it stand out? Now, I love the way Gilroy uses the wording in this scene, the way he has Karen ordering Arthur's death without explicitly ordering Arthur's death. Note all the ways she asks for it. You, you have to contain this. What are the, what's the option that we're looking at along those lines? Well, I'm wondering if there is some other option. I mean, something I'm not thinking of. Well, the other way. Now, in all of these cases, she is asking to have Arthur murdered. But she, smart lawyer that she is, is not going to be explicit with that request. That's well done. And notice, even at the end of the scene, she doesn't answer Vern's question. Is that okay? You understand her? Okay, proceed. Finally, one note. In the screenplay, the scene ends with Vern asking if she wants to bring Dawn in on it and Karen saying no. In the filmed version, they move that dialogue up a little bit further in the scene and instead end the scene on Vern's question about whether to proceed. That question is just left hanging as we cut to the next scene. Now, I think that's a much stronger ending of this scene. It leaves it on the key question. Anyway. As I said, this is not as complex a scene as the other, and I don't have much to say about the structure of the scene, but I did want a chance to include it as I think it is so well written. And it is worth looking at this scene through Sorkin's model. Karen's intention is to order Arthur's murder. Her obstacle is her own unwillingness to order it directly, her desire to maintain for herself some kind of plausible deniability. Her strategy is to talk around the request until Vern understands what she wants. And she accomplishes that when she says, well, the other way. It is not clear until that moment that Vern realizes that Karen is asking for Arthur's murder. Now, Vern's intention is to get his orders from Karen. His obstacle is her obfuscation and unwillingness to be clear. His strategy is to keep talking until he understands. Both achieve their intentions in this scene. Now let's step back and take a closer look at the dialogue. Now I must admit, these scenes confound some of my pet theories on dialogue. Of late, when writing dialogue, I look at the rhythm of the line. In particular, when all else fails and I don't have a reason to do otherwise, I will often try to make my lines iambic. And for those of you who forget your high school English, iambic is a rhythm in which you alternate stressed and unstressed syllables. So, for example, you take this line, the cat runs to the other side of the room. That is not iambic, but if you change it like this, the cat will run across the room. Suddenly it's iambic. Listen to the stresses in the syllables. The cat will run across the room. You can hear how that flows better than the first version. It's beneath conscious notice, but the words definitely have a rhythm that is lacking in the first version. Now, a lot of famous movie lines are iambic, or iambic's cousin, trochaic. You're gonna need a bigger boat. You're gonna need a bigger boat. So when I looked at the dialogue here, I was kind of expecting it to be iambic. To my surprise, that doesn't seem to be the case. 
Some lines are iambic, but that seems to be almost by accident. I doubt that Tony Gilroy set out to use iambic in this dialogue. Though there is one thing that makes me suspect I might be wrong. I can't help but notice that the final couplet of the first scene we covered is iambic. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? And for that matter, both the key lines and the final lines in the other scene are mostly iambic. Well, the other way. Is the other way. Well, the other way. Is the other way. Is that okay, you understand, or okay, proceed? You mean okay, you understand, or okay, proceed? So Gilroy trots out the use of iambic in key lines, but not throughout. He doesn't overdo it, but he uses it when it packs a punch. And a lesson for me, if not for all screenwriters, iambic and other rhythms can be useful, and I think the examples that I've given show that they are. But they are not the end-all and be-all of writing dialogue and should not be overused. Once again, the central lesson of this podcast comes through. There is no single one-size-fits-all solution to writing, just a large toolbox of different methods that can be applied in different circumstances. So what are the lessons from these scenes? First, a scene can be shaped according to the shifts of power between the characters in the scene. This is a powerful way of doing things and it can lead to a terrific dramatic scene as shown in the first scene that we examined. But as we saw in the second scene, it's not necessary. Power never shifts in that second scene, but the scene still works. Second, you can control power dynamics in a scene by controlling who is doing the talking. This isn't always the case, but sometimes having one person talk more shows that person is dominant. Or even, depending on how it's used, it can be used to show that the person doing all the talking is submissive. Being strong and silent when the other person is babbling does make a statement. The midpoint scene shows examples of both of these approaches. At first, Arthur does most of the talking from a position of weakness. Then Michael takes over from a position of strength. Finally, Arthur becomes the primary speaker as he gives the longest speech in the scene, but now he's doing it from a position of total control. So this can be done both ways, but you really should carefully consider who is talking the most and how that plays into the dynamics of the scene. Third, no single rule controls everything. That's even true of rules that I like, like iambic rhythms. After all, even Shakespeare would abandon iambic pentameter at times. Any rule that anyone will tell you about screenwriting is useful in some contexts, less useful in others. The key is to have a well-stocked intellectual toolbox so that you always have the right tool for the problem at hand. And that's Michael Clayton, round two. Next time we'll move on to something else. We're going to do Jennifer's Body, which is, I should stress, not the same quality of script of most of the films we've covered. But it has some similarities to a project that I'm working on, and so I want to do a deep dive into it. And because I'm doing a deep dive, so will this podcast. I hope you found this week's episode both entertaining and educational. For more information about it, check us out at storylanes.com. And do give us a review on your podcast service. It will help others find us. I see we have two reviews on Apple Podcasts now. So thanks to Froggy the Gremlin and the unnamed other reviewer. I appreciate it. This is Joe Jakevich and the Story Lanes Podcast. Talk at you later. Later.